Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today will come from Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. And you are welcome to stand. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, beloved. How, I hope and pray you are doing well, that you had a wonderfully safe Fourth of July celebration. If you would, please join with me in prayer as we... Uh, Seek the author of God's word, that we might understand his word, uh, not only that we might be able to merely appropriate it to our thinking, but that we would also be effectual doers of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessed opportunity to read your word, to hear your word, to hear your word, be taught, to sing your word, to be made alive by your word. Lord, we are needy people. We need your wisdom. We need your direction. We know, need to know how to navigate the waters of this life so that we might glorify you, that we might make you known to all people of all nations. Father, we want you to be famous among all people. We want people to know of your goodness. We want people to know of your mercy and of your grace. We want 
people to heed your cry, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. Father, we are grateful that you have enlightened our eyes and helped us to see great things, majestic things in your word. May your word impact everything about us. May it affect our emotions, affect our thinking and perception of this world, to affect our thinking of ourselves and the lives of others. And may it indeed be our guide, the director of our steps, the light unto our feet. Father, your word is the summation of what is true. And help us to desire it more and more every day. So Lord, in this time, ask that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that we would learn Christ this day and then be effectual doers of your word. Not only are we learning how to apply it to our own lives, but as well, Lord, help us to then be able to explain it and teach it to those around us. That we might be in that continual process of making disciples, teaching them to observe all that you have taught us. We thank you as well for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to do those things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to open this morning by reading Psalm 1, 1 through 3. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. We are embarking on a four-week series on soul care and discipleship within our midst and what that means. And we've decided to capture the thought of that with the, with the phrase growing up. That we are to be like trees that are constantly nourished in the Word of God. We've been given all the resources we need. We are, we are like trees that are planted next to streams of water. We have all that we need for growth and for prosperity and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And we use a tree as a metaphor to just help us understand that the idea of being a disciple is one that is growing, that is in the process of growing, that is becoming more broad and is becoming taller and is becoming more sturdy and strengthened in the Word of God. I grew up in California and had the beautiful privilege of only being about 30 minutes from the giant sequoias. And wow, do you get an appreciation for the magnitude of what a tree can be. I mean, these things are massive. They're huge. I mean, you, there is one tree, in fact, that a, a tunnel has been dug out through it, and you can drive through the tree. It is a sturdy tree. I mean, it's an unimaginable kind of a tree unless you're just sitting there, and even there, when you're standing before these trees, it's still unimaginable. And this is what we are to be as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are to grow up in him. 
As a disciple of Christ, it means that we learn from him, we adhere to him, and we make his teaching and his lifestyle our rule of conduct. You could sum up discipleship as we accept, we adhere to, and we adapt Christ's teaching and lifestyle to ours. As disciples, we grow up in him. We are expected to grow. Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Mark 4.8 talks about the seeds. If seeds fell into good soil, it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And 1 Peter, Peter says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This concept of growing up is the expected activity and life of a disciple of Christ. This is what soul care is about. This is what it is to be about helping us grow up in Christ as disciples of Christ. Growing up, and in this case, we're going to be looking at four different facets of what it means to be a disciple and what does discipleship look like within our church. Today, we're going to talk about the heart of a disciple. The cry of the heart of a disciple is, I want to be like Christ. And so to get us practicing this a little bit, a little audience participation right now, I just want you to say that. I want to be like Christ. Ready? Oh, that sounds so beautiful. <laughs> I want to be like Christ. That's the heart cry of a disciple. A lot of us, though, lack confidence in growing as a disciple and making disciples of other people. And so next week, Pastor Joe will be here to help us understand what confidence we have in Christ and in his sufficient resources and on the third week, Randy Patton will be here to talk about what does discipleship look like in the home, the expectation of, of parents and others within the home to disciple within the home, but not only that, but what is the church's responsibility as well in discipling the next generation. And then lastly, I will close us in talking about what does discipleship look like in the church and what is our responsibility to one another to help each other grow up in Christ. But today we're going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And in our text we see the concomitant lifestyle of a disciple. The disciple of Christ is one who is characterized by a lifestyle that is actively putting off the old self, being renewed in our thinking, and putting on the new self created in the likeness of God. We actively put on godly motives and thoughts and behavior. Because the heart cry of the disciple is, I want to be like Christ. And so to be like Christ, we put off the clothes of the old self. We put on the clothes of our new self. And one way of thinking about this is, is to think of us as a child who wants to wear his dad's clothing. There's a sense that the child looks up to his father, and he, he wants to be like his father and so one way of expressing that is he puts on his father's clothes. And as a disciple of Christ, this is what we are to be doing, is actively putting on the clothes of our new self so that we might indeed be like our father. We might indeed be like Christ. But to understand what Paul is saying here, we, we must look at the context. What we do as disciples is founded 
on who we are. Chapter 4 begins with a series of therefores. Therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, speak truth to one another. And then chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God. And the therefores point to what Paul says about who we are in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It points to our union with Christ. This is similar to the construction of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul is describing the beautiful doctrine of salvation. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God. In other words, doctrine is practical. Doctrine is expected to affect our lives. As disciples, we are expected to embody and and live out doctrine, to live out what we believe, to live out what we think. And as disciples, Paul has a lot to say about who we are in Christ. And in order for us to understand the appeal that Paul is making here, it's important for us to just look back over these three chapters of Ephesians and look at who we are in Jesus Christ. So turn with me to chapter 1. And as we walk through these three chapters, looking at who we are in Christ, I want you to just spend a moment as, as, as we read through these to just think about what that means. To think about the value of these statements. To, to think about the value of who we are. To treasure them in your heart to rejoice, and to do, matter of fact, what Paul is even doing in this, and that is to be blessing our God, to be praising his name for these great truths. He says in verse 3, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Very important for us is this incredible phrase. Oh, don't ever miss this phrase, in Christ. See, that is who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, of those who have put their faith in Christ, is that we are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. And that's what makes us who we are. And in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us, verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It was according to his good will that he would choose us in him before the creation of time to be holy and blameless before him, that he would predestine us to be adopted as the children of God, that we would be chosen and to be grafted in and to be brought into this intimate relationship in Christ to be considered the sons, the children of God. What an amazing blessing that is. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which he lavished upon us. Love that word. Sometimes we forget how generous our God is. He lavished upon us. He didn't give us just a mere smidgen of, of just, just barely, 
just, just barely what you need. Oh no. He's like the lady the other night when I bought the smallest ice cream for my kids who basically gave him like a three scooper. <laughs> you know, I looked at her and I go, that's the, small, that's the children's? And she's like, oh, I just gave him a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, she did. Wow. <laughs> she lavished it on. And this is our God. He has lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 18 and 19, you have been given the eyes, enlightened eyes, the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And then look to chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love. Boy, don't miss how often you see the word rich, how often you see the word great. Rich in mercy, great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ, and it is by grace you have been saved. He's raised us up with him. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And verse 8 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. In verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How amazing is that? See, we're forward-thinking people. We are directed onward because we're going home. See, this isn't our home. Our home is yet to be. And in that home, it'll be governed by all righteousness. In that home, the people and the citizens that make up that home will be devoted to the righteousness of God. That is going to be a tremendous home whereby we will be in the presence of Christ and Christ will be in the presence of us. Wow, that's where we're going. That's our home. We are leaning forward kind of people. You know, one of the things I appreciate so much about being able to travel and just to visit with churches of other languages and cultures is that when you get there, typically, I don't know anyone. And typically, they don't understand me and I don't understand them. But there's a beautiful thing that happens because of the union that we have in Christ. There's a beautiful fellowship that takes place. There's a beautiful warmth. There's a, uh, there's a point where you just, you sit there and you think to yourself, you've just barely met these people and you don't understand each other perfectly and yet it feels so warm and welcoming like family. Because we are family in Christ. And the bond of the Holy Spirit is so much thicker than blood. And, and to see, when we value that, 
When we understand how incredibly worthy that is, how incredibly precious that is, how majestic that is, see, it has an impact on the way we view the relationship that we have with one another. It it has an impact on the way we address and deal with conflict with one another. It has an impact on whether or not I want to show grace or not show grace, or whether or not I will forgive or I will not forgive. It has an amazing impact when we value the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. God has made us a household. We are saints and members, the household of God. In verse 22, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Wow, what an amazing thing prayer is to be able to speak to the holy God of the universe. The disciples cried, teach me to pray, because there was an intimacy that Jesus had. There was a confidence that Jesus had. There was a boldness that Jesus had. That initial impetus to cry out to Christ to teach him to pray had very little to do with, I want to pray like you pray so that I can get the things that I want, that I can make things happen. No, it's because I just want to be with Christ. I want to be with God. I want to have that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy, that kind of boldness, that kind of access. And in Christ, Paul says, that is what we have. We have a boldness and we have an access to be able to approach God. Wow. Now, the whole point of all this is, is, see, this is what Paul's going to appeal to when he begins to address what our lifestyle should be like as a disciple. And so it's important for us to see the value of all that Paul is talking about. In verse 16, he goes on to say that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 19, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he closes this section, verse 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power of a power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy The whole put-off, put-on dynamic in verses 22 through 24 is how we walk in a worthy manner. See, walk refers to all manner of life. It's very important for us to understand that this refers to an inward, outward type of a life. It's everything that's inside of us, what we think, what our motives are, what our desires are, what our wants are. It is also what we worship. It is also what we say. It is what we do. It is the way we conduct our lives. That's what is embodied in that word, walk. How do we live our lives? In what way do we conduct our lives? How do we think? How, what do we desire? What do we do? And then he says worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. And here is where Paul then appeals to the value of our calling. And he appeals to the value both to motivate us and to give us a standard by which we approach our lives. And he uses this elsewhere, 
Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, walk in a manner worthy of God. And, and the idea here is that we live in a way that is suitable to the intrinsic character of our calling, the gospel of Jesus Christ and of God himself. That's the idea of worthiness. It's, it's suitable. It, it matches the value and the worthiness of the calling. Many of you who know me know that I like coffee. And I appreciate really good quality coffee. Brazil was fantastic. But you know, one thing that drives me nuts is when you take a really good, valuable coffee and then you put it into a styrofoam cup. <laughs> See, that makes about as much sense as putting a bumper sticker on a Rolls Royce. They, they, it's not suitable. It doesn't match in value. And that's, that's what Paul is alluding to. That's what he's appealing to. He wants us to see the value of the calling in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then he wants to appeal to that value so that we understand the way in which we should live. That the way we live should match the kind of value we place on our calling. And so, this also implies that we give careful attention then to the way we live. And that's why later on he'll say in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk in verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so Paul picks up this theme of walking in a worthy manner in verse 17 and following. And what we get in verses 17 through 21, Paul portrays our old self. And then in verses 25 and following, he describes practical examples of what our new self ought to look like. And so in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Gentiles here refers to those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. These are non-believers. These are the people um, that we once were if we're in Christ now. Paul says that we are no longer to live our lives as such. He goes on to describe how non-believers live their lives. Non-believers walk in the futility of their minds. And it is significant that the basic issue of lifestyle centers in the mind. What do we think? How we think, what we believe, that affects eventually what we do. And so what he says is he goes on to talk about the fact that he speaks of understanding and ignorance in verse 18, learning and teaching in verse 20 and 21, and the mind and truth in verse 23 and 24, all of which are related to the intellect, how we think, how we perceive, what our attitudes are. And because non-believers and Christians think completely differently about life, their behavior will therefore be different. The non-Christian and the Christian will eventually act differently because they think differently. And as far as spiritual and moral issues are concerned, an unbeliever cannot think straight 
about those issues. His rational processes in those areas are warped. They're inadequate. That word futility, it refers to that which fails to produce a desired result, that which never succeeds. The word is synonymous with emptiness. The Hebrew equivalent is often translated vanity, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there, Solomon concluded that a life that is lived by one's own standards or the world's standard would amount to vanity and a striving after the wind. Have any of you ever tried to wrestle the wind? Try to take it down? It's useless. It's empty. It's vain. It's like a vapor. There is a uselessness and emptiness to the mind of non-believers. They are the masters and lords of their thoughts. They are the judges of what is right and wrong, what is true and false. They are the ultimate authority. And it is described as useless, as empty, of no account, because it is not informed by God's reasoning. They are darkened, in verse 18, Paul says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is a bleak description of the unregenerate. They are without light in their understanding. They, they are alienated from God, and therefore they're living in darkness. They are without knowledge of God because they harden their hearts toward God. They suppress all that could be known about God. They are without sensitivity to what is decent. They are unashamed. And they are relentless in pursuing all sorts of indecent and impure behavior. Now, this is a general classification of non-believers, a description, a general description of the unregenerate. Not all non-believers express their depravity to the same degree as others do but they are darkened in their understanding. The word means it indicates a continuing condition of spiritual darkness. It implies both ignorance and immorality. And the darkness of understanding is coupled with this exclusion from the life of God. The, the cause of that condition, as he says in Scripture, is the hardness of their heart. There's a, a willful determination to remain in sin. And so because men are determined to reject him, God sovereignly and judicially determines to blind their minds and to exclude them from his presence. We get this concept in Romans 1. He says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And so because of the hardness of their heart, the ungodly are unresponsive to truth. They are likened to corpses who cannot hear a conversation in the morgue. Hardness denotes this idea of, of being rock solid, rock hard. It was used by physicians to describe the calcification that forms around broken bones. It was also used about hard formation that sometimes would even form in joints, paralyzing people. It could connote the idea of paralysis as well as of hardness. Sin has a calcifying effect, and the heart of the person who continually chooses sin becomes hardened to spiritual truth, completely insensitive to the things of God. And finally, 
that spawns recklessness. In verse 19, they have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That opening phrase, have become callous, means they were beyond feeling, like callous skin. They've gone beyond the point of pain. Nothing hurts. They they give themselves over to sensuality, which, which means, can be translated as vice that throws off all restraint and flaunts itself. They they performed every impurity and they lusted for more. See, sensuality does not satisfy, but only creates a greater appetite. This principle is seen throughout Scripture, and Proverbs 27:20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Now, what this should do is give us an appreciation of the powerful effects of sin. And and it it should be something that we don't play with. Now, I have this inordinate, unexplained fear of possums. (laughs) And I have a moment in my life that the only thing I could say is that this was sovereign comedy. This was God in his sovereignty messing with me. <laughs> My wife and I were on a walk during the day. And while on the sidewalk, I looked in front of us and I saw what looked like a cat. However, it didn't completely move like a cat. But I wasn't thinking possum because it was daytime. But lo and behold, as we got closer, indeed, it was a possum. And I said, let's go. We're going to cross the street and walk on the other side. We crossed four lanes and a median (laughs) to get away from that possum. And while on the other side, and this is where the sovereign comedy kicks in, because God in his sovereignty, that that possum began to follow us. (laughs) And a glorious thing happened. A 1970-something Lincoln came to my rescue and flattened that sucker. However, God wasn't done. That thing's head and front legs began to move. No, 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 no. No sympathy. Mm-mm. <laughs> and, and I looked at that thing, I said, that's it, we're running. <laughs> I wanted to be as far away from that possum as possible. And that's the idea of sin. We want to be as far away from sin as possible. We don't want a hint of it. We don't want to edge up next to it. We, do, we don't want to walk to the edge to, to do just enough before actually sin. We never ask the question, how far is too far? Because that is the mindset of someone who may still love more the old self than the new 
Because a disciple of Christ who has been created anew is always facing forward, moving forward, away from anything that has to do with the old self. That is the bent and the desire of the disciple of Christ. I want to be like Christ. And when men choose and women choose to petrify their hearts by constant rejection of the light, they become dark in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That is the unspeakable tragedy of unbelief, the tragedy of the person who makes himself his own God. But in verse 20, Paul says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, which you have, and were taught in him, which you were, as the truth is in Jesus. The Ephesian Christians were taught the exact opposite of the world's style by learning of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul uses three noteworthy teaching terms and indicate respectively that Jesus was the subject, the teacher, and the environment of their instruction. Jesus was the subject of their instruction, is indicated in the words learned Christ. They learned of the living Christ. They learned more than the knowledge about him. They learned him. They learned his life. They learned his ethics and his character. See, this ties into our union with Christ. When we're in union with Christ, we learn Christ. Next, we see that he was their teacher. Surely you heard of him. Christ himself is our teacher. Even if the teaching is given through the lips of his disciples, to receive the teaching that is from his word in the truest sense is to hear him. Last, we understand that Jesus is the environment in which the instruction takes place. For the Ephesians were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Everything was in Jesus. He is the subject. He is the teacher. He is the environment in which we learn. We are disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. This is captured in this 5th century poem. It says this, Christ be with me, Christ within me. Christ behind me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ in quiet, Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. From Christ, we are permeated with the very antithesis to this downward spiral of the world plunging recklessly after its sin. Instead of deadness, hardness, and recklessness, we have life, we have tenderness, we have an abandonment toward the upward spiral of becoming like Christ. The result of this dynamic teaching is then verse 22. You have learned Christ to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, being in Christ, I want to be like Christ. That means I want to take off the clothes of my old self. I want to take off those filthy rags. Putting off is a term of used of taking off clothes. And in this verse, he uses it to describe the activity of a disciple of Christ. 
As disciples of Christ, we take off the filthy clothes of our old selves, those selves that belong to our former manner of life, the life that he had just described, the life where we once lived. This is the corrupt life, and it is made so through deceitful desires. Sin is so alluring. It promises to fulfill what we think we want. It it preys on our fleshly passions, and, and that's why the call of discipleship is a denial of self. That's why Peter describes it as we no longer live in the passions of our flesh, but rather we live by the will of God. The non-believer is exceptionally feeling-oriented, passionately driven by the things of the flesh, and the follower of Jesus Christ instead is one who lives by the will of God, the objective truth. This is what a disciple of Christ does. The truth is Jesus. But we are tempted to follow the deceitfulness of sin. Our old self manner of living is living by our passion and our thinking. But this is repentance, whereby we turn from our passions and our thinking, and we toss off those filthy clothes, and there is no turning back. We are forward-thinking people. We want to be like Christ. Again, we understand this principle. As disciples, our lives are characterized by actively putting off thought, speech, behavior that is congruent to the old self. And so our approach to Scripture reading and teaching from Scripture, we, we want to think about at least praying, Lord, show me any way in me that is not agreeable to you that I may know what I must put off. Help me know what I need to put off, what filthy rags that I need to be putting off. See, that's the activity of Scripture. It, it does that for us. It enlightens our eyes to see those things. All Scripture breathed out by God, useful for teaching, rebuking, ah, judging, to help me see what are those old filthy rags that I need to take off. And then correcting, what are the new, clean clothes that I need to be putting on? And that as I do this on an ongoing basis, Scripture continues to train me and train me and train me in righteousness so that I might be more like Jesus Christ. And as a disciple... We also want to change our attitudes. I want to change my attitude. I want to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. To be renewed means to be made young. It denotes life and vitality. We have been brought from life of futile and darkened thinking to a life of meaningful and enlightened thinking. And this is passive. And what that means is that what we are to do is we are to humbly and to submissively and to warmly accept God's word and wisdom and then to apply it willingly and happily to our lives. That's how we renew our minds. We submit and place ourselves under the authority of God's word to think God's thoughts after him so that we might live 
in such a way that we are becoming progressively more and more like Christ. And we do this habitually. A choice will create a habit. And the habit will eventually create a character. And a character reaps consequences. And we want to be those that are moving forward and becoming more and more like Jesus. We want this in the spirit of our minds. It means that we want full change from the inside out We want to change in wants, desires, and motives. We want to change in thoughts and speech and action. We want a complete renewal in our inward parts. We want vitality and life in the recesses of our soul. We want Christ through and through. We want nothing left untouched by the holiness and righteousness of God. I want to be like Christ. So I put off the old clothes of the old self. I have my attitude changed And then I want to put on the new clothes of my new self. This is really where the excitement of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ is. I want to put on the new clothes created after the likeness of God. That's what I want to be. That's the life I want to live. See, as disciples of Christ, we've learned Christ to put on this new self. This is who we are. So this is who we are to be. We are declared righteous and holy. Remember what he said. He chose us in him before the creation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. Guess what? His sight matters. And he has made us that way. So let us then live that way. He is, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. In Christ, we're created after the likeness of God. We continuously put on the clothes of our new self. This is the freedom we have in Christ. See, many of us don't recognize the freedom we have to put on the things of Christ. See, we have the empowered freedom to love. We we have the freedom to be joyful. We have the freedom to be at peace with others, to exercise patience, to be kind, to be good, to be faithful, to be gentle, to be self-controlled, because in Christ, we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's oftentimes we get caught up maybe in the drudgery of living a Christ-like life because we think too often about what we're supposed to put off. Oh, can't do that. Can't do this. Can't think that. Oh, can't, don't say it, don't say it. You know, we spend more of our time biting our tongues, banging ourselves up against the wall to not do something. Oh, please understand this, church. From that, you have been freed. See, If I get on a plane today to go to Los Angeles, I don't really need to spend a lot of time thinking about leaving Indy. I get focused on going to LA. And as I focus on that, what eventually happens? I leave Indy. Church, please spend more of your time thinking about what you're free to do. And when people say to you things like, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. Remind them that that's a lie. 
If you don't have anything good to say, repent. (laughs) And in the freedom of Christ, practice saying things that are good. Practice saying things that build each other up. Practice that. Guess what happens? If you become a practitioner of saying things that encourage and build other people up, what are you not doing? (laughs) Tearing people down. And what else aren't you doing? You're not biting your tongue. What else aren't you doing? Believing that if you have nothing else to say or good to say, don't say it. See, we have this incredible freedom in Christ to live out in pursuit of becoming more like Christ. Oh, please listen to this. There is no better life to live than to be in pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. Oh, there's no better life to live. And that is the life of the disciple of Christ. I want to be like Christ. This is captured so beautifully as we close in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for freeing us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for setting us apart that we might live this life in pursuit of becoming more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. There is simply no better life to live than that. Help us to appreciate the great value of our calling. And may the value of that calling then motivate and give us the standard by which we approach the way we live our lives. Father, thank you so much for helping us understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This ongoing activity of putting off the clothes of our old self, having our minds renewed, and putting on the new clothes of our new self for your glory and yours alone. And as we close, if there is anything that you would just love to have somebody pray with you about, to be able to express to them the need that you have, to have others be praying for them, for you, that you would want them to pray for you, Lord, that God would just be the one to whom you cry out to and that you beseech others to join you in that cry. There will be people up here that would love to do that with you. And Father, may we, as we leave this place, walk in a manner worthy of our calling and recognize that when we get it wrong, that by your grace, we can still get it right by handling it in the way that you would have us handle it, crying out to you, asking for forgiveness, and then believing and knowing full well that you forgive us and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.